Becoming a Responsible Scientific Consumer and the Shocking History of Modern Psychology. I first developed my love of science in elementary school. Our library had a series of picture books about space. Each one covered a different planet in the solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the seventh one, Neptune, and in those days, Pluto. They were filled with real pictures and science facts. My first grade brain couldn't get enough. I thought they were awesome. The stars aligned when LEGO released a collection called Life on Mars. It was complete with space shuttles, rovers, and even aliens. When you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, you'll hear a lot of the same answers, doctor, president, and the like. I think a lot of adults were surprised when I would answer with astronomer. I was hooked on space. That passion for science mellowed over the years, but never went away. One of my favorite classes in high school was my biology class. It helped that I had an incredible teacher. He was a big man with a huge red beard, but he had a voice like a mouse. If the class was ever being rambunctious, instead of yelling, he would whisper, Oh no, they aren't listening to me. Oh no. It was surprisingly effective in regaining control of a group of teenagers. I was fascinated with how things worked, how the world fit together, and how each cog played its part. In college, I took a class on psychology. It was the first time I specifically studied the brain. I went to most classes because I had to, but I wanted to go to that psychology class. I loved the real-world application of it. It was probably the first time that I started to become self-aware of who I was, why I did things, and how I could change. I still love learning about science. My main educator these days is the internet. From obscure physics concepts like brachistochrone to mind-blowing videos about the size of the known universe, I continue to find it all interesting. It was here that I first learned about the replication crisis. Defining the replication crisis. The replication crisis is something that feels like it should be more well-known. Even for someone like me that is constantly learning about science, it only came across my radar a few years ago. In the era of self-help books and self-care, it seems even more important to know about it. The replication crisis is this. It turns out that the conclusions from many scientific studies, especially in psychology and the social sciences, cannot be replicated or reproduced. I was extremely alarmed when I first learned this. Science at its core is built upon repeatable results. This is why reducing variables is so important when using the scientific method. Less variables mean more accurate tests. The more accurate a test, the more accurate the collected data. The more accurate the data, the better able to compare to the original hypothesis. This leads to more sound conclusions, conclusions that can then be shared and retested, and the cycle starts all over again. Scientific conclusions are meant to be questioned and retested. The whole purpose of science is to build a knowledge base for how the natural world works. Inherent in that is the understanding that conclusions will change. Newton thought the mass of the earth caused an attraction that made objects fall. 
Einstein built upon that knowledge by theorizing that gravity is the result of curved space-time. Scientific knowledge builds upon itself as new ideas come and retesting occurs. The concerning thing about the replication crisis is that many conclusions in psychology and the social sciences are not being built upon a solid foundation. The initial testing doesn't hold up, and so the whole thing comes crumbling down. Instead of advancing the knowledge further, many common concepts are being found to hold no scientific worth. The stages of grief are not scientific. One example of this is the stages of grief. They are a very popular idea in the world of psychology. Even before I knew much about psychology, I was aware of the linear progression of grief. First is denial. You try to avoid the inevitable reality of a situation. Next is anger. You have an outpouring of frustration. Then comes bargaining. You vainly seek a way out of the circumstance. Then it's depression. Lastly, you accept the outcome and move forward. It turns out that the stages of grief are far more anecdotal than scientific. The concept was popularized by Swiss-American psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She worked with patients on their deathbed, and she wrote a book about it that was published in 1969 called On Death and Dying. After the book came under scrutiny, she admitted regret for framing things in a misleading way. It turns out that the stages are not linear or predictable, and they were founded not upon how people cope with grief, but with death. By then it was too late. The public was already running away with the idea. Even today, her concept is mainstream. If you look up her book on Amazon, it has almost 2,000 positive reviews. Why is this happening? As with any complicated problem, there is not one person to blame for the replication crisis. There is no scapegoat that can be held accountable for the misinformation. Problems like this are wide-ranging and vast in scope. One of the popular theories around the rise of the replication crisis is the publish or perish culture in academia. It comes back to money as so many things in our capitalistic society do. Scientists are sometimes forced to choose between securing grants and their job security or following sound scientific principles. Publishing new and interesting studies often trumps publishing boring or possibly more factual ones. The question goes from trying to explain the natural world to formulating a popular headline. Replicating other studies falls even farther down the priority list. Unoriginal ideas are rarely published. It's a systemic problem more than a scientific one. This leads to studies conducted with a low statistical power. This low power means that the test only has a small chance of detecting the true effect of the results. The conclusions are then heavily influenced by random variables and thus hard to replicate. Becoming a responsible scientific consumer. There is also a level of accountability to be leveraged against the armchair expert. The irony is not lost on me that I am doing that right now. I often hear the phrase, do your own research. All that school taught me about research was not to use Wikipedia, but it turns out the nonprofit is actually very reliable in most situations. 
Does anyone know how to do their own research? And how many articles does a person have to read before they believe, I am now an expert in this field? One of the problems I have observed from armchair experts is that they presume expertise too quickly. They begin to believe this is how it is, with no room for variation. I believe an expert scientist would be the first to admit how little they understood about the natural world. That is part of the excitement of science. I once watched a video about how the science of bicycles staying upright is still ongoing. Something as simple as bicycles is still a fascinating area of science. There is constant discovery, constant learning, and it all happens through testing and retesting. The more a thing is tested, the more reliable the conclusions become. I've learned that part of being a responsible scientific consumer is being open to change, open to the fact that science is forever building on itself. A great example of this is vaccines. Vaccines are a well-tested and reliable solution for many viruses. They have been around for hundreds of years and have an incredible track record for saving lives. When COVID happened, some were worried about mRNA vaccines. A few persuasive articles and headlines had everyone become overnight experts on vaccines. It felt new and unfamiliar and therefore was rejected. In my personal research, I learned that mRNA vaccines had been in development for decades. The research was sound and the experts were all pointing in the same direction. Add the incredible amount of brain power and money that was going toward a solution worldwide, and I was confident when I got vaccinated. The foundation was solid, and the testing was robust. The world of self-help. When I was in my early 20s, I was enamored with self-help culture. I was constantly reading, watching, and learning about new techniques and practices. I was interested in things like, what's the perfect routine? And how can I maximize my productivity? What I didn't know was that many of the ideas I was consuming claimed to be scientific, but they were not. They claimed to be the solution and the thing everyone needs to know and do. Many were well-intentioned, but leveraged clickbait titles that misinformed. I don't think it's a coincidence that the most complicated things in the planet are hard to put in a box, hard to explain, or hard to quantify. Humans are messy. There are 86 billion neurons in the brain and 8 billion people on Earth. That's a lot of variables. I find the issue to be more in the messaging and less in the results. I've learned to have a healthy dose of skepticism and an appreciation for the scientific method. I've learned to look for ideas instead of solutions and then I use those ideas to inform my own solutions and conclusions.